Well, for those who visited Jerusalem, the old city is truly a sight to behold and experience. It's just a square kilometre in size. It's enclosed by 16th century walls. It used to be the entire city until about the mid-1800s. The city's history and its distinctive white stone, its narrow laneways, its wonderful religious sites, its aura... It's drawn pilgrims and visitors for millennia. But the old city story has only been partly written. It needs updating, according to our next guest. And that's because the stories of those who actually live and work in the old city haven't really been told, he believes. Matthew Tellers, an author, journalist and documentary maker. And he joined me earlier to talk about his new book, work, Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the old city. Hello, Geraldine. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, you are Jewish. You grew up in England. You first travelled to Jerusalem when you, when you were 11. You've been back many times and you describe yourself as an Anglo-Zionist and carefully, even warily, separate your book from white, well-educated Englishmen like yourselves. But you straddle both Judaism and the British. So I want to know, how do you step back from your background to bring us something fresh about one of the most sort of complicated cities on earth. First, I would say I grew up in an Anglo-Zionist uh, background in my family, my parents in particular, but I would not call myself an Anglo-Zionist. I've, I was born and brought up in that particular sort of environment where Israel was very important and Jewish sensibility was very important. And then from about the age of 20, my early 20s, I have been lucky enough and privileged enough to be able to sort of seek out other opinions, other directions, other perspectives. So I spent some time in Cairo, I spent some time in Jordan and travelling around the Middle East and also the Gulf area as well for my work um, and also for pleasure as well. And so that sort of the next 20 years of my life were a process of putting what I'd been given as a child into a wider context and listening to more people, listening to, to people telling if you like telling the same stories about Jerusalem and about Israel and about Zionism uh, that I'd heard as a child from a different perspective. So that's, Meaning uh, what, that was devoid a, of politics, more about people or what? Much more from, a, I mean, to use a binary uh, sort of division, much more from the other side, from the Palestinian perspective. Oh, I see. So listening to, uh, listening to Palestinian people in Palestine, but also outside in, uh, I was lucky enough to go to Beirut and listen to people in some of the, the terrible refugee camps that people have been stuck in for decades there, and uh, listening to, to to people in Jordan as well. Jordan has a uh, probably a majority Palestinian population, or certainly a very large Palestinian population. And trying to put the the ideas that I'd heard as a, as I say as a child into a wider context, and listening to what people were saying about the things that I thought I knew from their own perspective. Mm. Um, and I've been able to come out with this book um, at this point now. I see it as a way to try and humanise the old city. As you said in your introduction, um, I mean, I wouldn't claim that, that Jerusalem has not, that story of the old city has not been written. Um, it's been written, you know, 10,000 times or 100,000 times. But as you said, very rightly, the perspective of the people who live and work and raise their kids and run a business and whatever inside the walls of the old city, that perspective and, and those lives have often been overlooked. And, and what I wanted to try and do was to use the platform that I have in order to amplify those voices well, that are there. I wouldn't claim to be giving anybody a voice. People have voices. They've been shouting, they've been yelling. But we, 
in how you were able to find the West, um, I would say have not been listening to. Basically, the maps, the maps of Jerusalem are typically drawn into four quarters, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Armenian. Um, But you Mm. say these are wrong and this is, these distinct divisions are what are Mm. inaccurate and that flows through to a whole lot of distorted views about um, the perspectives that are on show there. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. There were two major motivations for me to want to try and write this book. One was, as we've touched on, that um, I was watching people like myself, tourists and outsiders and pilgrims and visitors, how they would interact when they arrived in this place. They would see the people who were sort of, in a sense, between them and their holy place. People come to Mm. the church or to touch the Western Wall or to visit the mosque. People who are in between me and my the culmination of my spiritual journey are an impediment, you know, and I, that didn't seem respectful to me, and I wanted to try and unpick that. And another motivation, as you've said, is about the unreality of how Jerusalem is presented and consumed uh, in the outside world, if you like, that all the maps, all the guidebooks, the, you know, academia and literature and the media as well, when they portray Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem I'm talking about, it's always divided into these four, into very neat four quarters, as you said, Muslim and Jewish and Christian and Armenian. Mm. The reality when you're there is there is no division. There's no line between the Christian quarter and the Muslim quarter. Yeah, but there is a different feel, though, I would argue. in the. You don't think there is a different feel in the different... Well, you say there are nine quarters, but uh, I certainly think there's a bit of a different feel. There is a different feel. The, the different feel particularly comes, as you were about to say, in the Jewish quarter. Mm. Um, so the Jewish quarter has, a, uh, in a sense, has a different history from the other areas of the old city because of 20th century conflict. So what happened in 1948 um, when the Jordanian army came through and then there was a lot of destruction. Uh, there was uh, People were expelled and there was a lot of displacement of people from the Jewish quarter. And then when Israel then uh, invaded and occupied the old city in 1967, there was a rebuilding process by the Israeli state to not just recreate, but to, in a sense, to create a new Jewish quarter and to expand its borders and whatever. So the feeling in the Jewish quarter is very different, um, and it has very particular reasons why that is so. But across the city and pre-20th century, there there were no divisions. Well, in fact, you you uh, say, sorry to interrupt, but you would say it's actually British mm -hmm. colonialism that bequeathed these four neat quarters. (laughs) Tell us more about Mm -hmm. that, please. It's even it's even before pre uh, sort of pre colonialism. It's before the British. Yeah. I think I'm the first. I'm I'm not going to sort of claim some magical victory here, but I think I'm the first person to identify who it was who first came up with the uh, formulation of the four quarters. There's a whole long story behind it. Uh, it goes back to Napoleon, mm. early 19th century history, whatever. Um, but there came a point in in the 1840s when a young chaplain to the Protestant Bishop of Jerusalem, um, and the chaplain was a man called uh, George Williams. He was only 27, and he was only in Jerusalem for about a year or so. And he produced a book, and in the book was a map. Um, If you look at the maps of Jerusalem pre-George Williams, these four quarters don't exist. And you can trace it quite explicitly through, there's a map of 1818, there's a map of 1835, there's a map of 1837, and so on. And you get to George Williams's map of 1849, or a map that was produced on a on a survey that was made by the British Army slightly before that, to which George Williams added all the labelling. And you look at his map, and then all the maps following in the late 19th century, all of them 
have the four quarters. So George Williams, I, I think, was the first. Why it came about and why it survived is a whole other long story as well. Mm. I think it's it's to do with the Protestant mission that, that Britain was leading in Jerusalem at that time. I wonder if it's a search um, for neatness, which <laughs> you don't get a lot of. <laughs> There's a bit of that as well. In Israel There's a bit Palestine. of that as well. Mm. Yes, yeah, that the, the, a European conception of a city uh, is different from uh, other people's conception of a city. And this was an imposition. This was, in a sense, it was a British or European pre-colonial imposition on Jerusalem to make it neat and tidy so that people from outside could understand the place because they were struggling to understand what on earth was going on. There. Well, it, it is complicated. You know, you, you, you go there and you, sort of the world's religions run very deep there, you know, sometimes playing out in quite funny ways. You know, you talk about the Christian denominations, you know, you get the Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Latin, Syriac Orthodox, Coptic and so on. And that's all played out uh, via the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, which I actually honestly found a bit of a zoo to be candid <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, you know, you're not so, the only one to say that. <laughs> oh, so much squabbling over it that it's two Muslim families. You remind me in the book who hold the keys to the ancient mm. church, and they open it every day. They do, they do, and that's been a situation which has been prevailing for, you know, at least uh, five hundred years, and and some people say it's nearer to a thousand years. Um, but that, you know, I'd hesitate to call it bickering. People do call it bickering but between the church denominations in that particular building. It's very understandable when you think of the of the depth of spiritual and political uh, stakes at play in that building. The jockeying for position is very understandable. There's this. There's a story um, connected with that as well. If you look at the facade of that church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in the middle of the old city of Jerusalem. And if you know to look for it at the upper window, there's this small wooden five-rung ladder. Um, but I, I, you know, I wanted to find out what's the story of this ladder. Why is this ladder always there in every single picture? You go back into history, and there's, you know, historical etchings of the, the church facade, and this ladder is there. It stems from that bickering between church denominations. In uh, 1757, the Ottoman Sultan at the time wants to try and, and restore order in the church. Quite often there's been violence breaking out between the, the church authorities inside this building. And he issued this decree which said, we are freezing the relations that exist between the church organisations in, in this building um, as it is now. And that decree uh, persisted and it was, it was uh, reaffirmed a century later and it's sort of elevated to become an instrument of international law. Uh, it applies to this church and it applies to other holy sites in Jerusalem and Bethlehem as well. And it means that anything that happens within the church must be done with prior approval from all the other parties involved. And that goes for, uh, you know, picking up litter, uh, who lights a candle, at what time, when services start and stop. As you said, the, the people who come in the morning to unlock the church and they, how they close the church in the evening and lock the door. Everything happens according to these set principles. So uh, one of the consequences of that is that this ladder was in place when the status quo was promulgated. It's, it was there. There was nothing in the status quo, in all the, the rules and regulations, which said anything about moving ladders. So it's been there for 265 <laughs> years at least yes. since the Sultan made this declaration and possibly longer than that. Um, I think, you know, it's very easy to laugh at it. I think it's actually rather beautiful. I think there's a... Uh, with, I don't want to go overboard about it. You can get very purple about Jerusalem. Well, you can do. get very purple but, about Jerusalem. But, 
I mean, it does. It's but quite seeing, captivating. Seeing this ladder is a it's a it's a lovely thing. It's a it's a representation of human. I don't know, human frailty. Well, yes. I mean, this conforms that marvellous sort of, um, oh, what is it? Bittersweet line, I suppose, in that Ridley Scott film, Kingdom of Heaven, given to Saladin, the great Mm -hmm. Arab uh, victor, when he finally retakes Jerusalem. And they said, what is it? What does it mean? He said, oh, Jerusalem, it is nothing and everything. (laughs) You know, it's that beautiful sort of mix. Look, that is the story of Jerusalem and how sort of seductive it is. Despite all Mm. the tensions and difficulties that afflict Israel and that clearly animate you, who wants to be angry about what you find in the the old city. Uh, I don't want to be angry, Geraldine, I just am. Well, you just am. Well, you are, quite. Your book, I have to say to you, strikes me as almost hopeful that the people, Matthew, who live and work in the old city generally Mm. seem to love it, despite the hardship Mm. of rules and the regulations that often target Mm. them. Do you find that? Very much so. I think it is hopeful. I think that sense of uh, of home, you know, I was going to say of ownership or possession, that's not quite the right sort of nuance, but the sense of being in the right place that I got when I was talking and listening to, to Palestinian Jerusalemites, in particular people who live and work or have a connection to the old city, um, that's very, very strong. There's, a, there's an Arabic word which uh, sort of describes it very well. It's become a sort of a central feature of Palestinian identity, and the word is sumud which is very difficult to translate into English, but it's sort of most often rendered as steadfastness. And there is a steadfastness among those people. There's a sense that this is our place. This is where I need to be. And I have to do what I'm doing in my life just to assert a presence in the Jerusalem that I love. Mm. And that is a, a, a sort of a nuance of national personality, which we very often don't find in, particularly in the in the English-speaking West, where, uh, you know, you tend to get, um, um, especially on the news, tribal blocks of opinion, one set against the other in this in this very uh, sharply defined binary. Um, obviously, it's not, it's not how anybody is anywhere in the world, um, but to be able to, to find it and to be able to allow people in Jerusalem to express it, I was a, was a great privilege for me. I loved it. Look, you have touched on and tried to harness some of the incredible complexities and ambiguities uh, and contradictions of uh, Jerusalem. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Geraldine. It's been great. I've had fun. And Matthew Teller's book, Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the old city, uh, is published by Profile.